I'm out of breath. <clears throat> Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, this Psalm 130, a notice right above uh, verse 1, <clears throat> it says, A song of ascents. The songs of ascents were those in which they sang as they went up to worship on the feast days as the Israelite people, singing to the Lord. That's why you find mostly smaller uh, psalms that are there. They would go up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a higher point, and so all the areas around, when you would go up to worship, you would go up to Jerusalem, and they would sing these psalms as they went. The psalms of ascent run from Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. And that's what you find here in this song of ascent. But also, it's interesting, isn't it, that it's almost a literal ascent as well. Because when you ascend, you go up from somewhere below to somewhere higher. Jesus was ascended to heaven. He ascended from the earth up into the heavenlies. So it is with the psalmist here. Notice that the psalmist starts and he is in the deeps. And as I had said last Lord's Day, the deeps could mean that he was just simply in great trouble. It doesn't refer to that he was in some area where the water was overflowing him. It's just speaking metaphorically of that. We understand what it means when we say, I'm up to my eyeballs in this. Or that the water has flooded me. It's overcoming me. It seems like it's overflowing my head. And so the psalmist was referring to that, but then he begins to speak about the forgiveness that he has with the Lord and then ascending out of that pit. So it is literally an ascent psalm as he ascends from the pit, as it were, from the depths of trouble and trial and difficulty in his life as a result of sin, not suffering, and he ascends because he finds that forgiveness with the Lord. I think you can find this also in David's life in Psalm 32. When David sinned against the Lord and against Uriah and against all of the Israelite nation, uh, but specifically, ultimately, sinning against the Lord, he ascends from that pit of lowness of his life. There he is in Psalm 32 where he has no desire to worship the Lord. He has no desire to come before the Lord. He has no desire to honor the Lord. And it's the Lord who sends to him Nathan the prophet to deal with David, to shake him out of his lethargy and to raise him up again from the lowness of the pit, as it were, to the heights of heaven where he finds that forgiveness with the Lord. Now, as Christians, the biggest struggle that we have is the sin in our lives. Yes, we have the world that constantly comes against us. Yes, we have the devil as well and the demonic host. But our biggest struggle is the daily battle with sin in our lives, with the iniquity. And when the psalm writer here begins to speak about the forgiveness of his iniquities, he is referring to the moral evil in his life which is the breaking of the commandments of God. That's what he's referring to. This is not an occasion where the suffering has come upon him, and as in Job, and he doesn't understand why it has come upon him. 
This is a breaking of the commandments of God and God's hand chastening the individual to repentance. And we have all been there. If you have not been there, then you're not a Christian. Do you understand that? Maybe some of you are offended by that. Well, let me double it and say it again. If you are without chastening, you're not a child of God. This is exactly what the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews 12. If you are without chastening, you are illegitimate and not a child of God. All the children of God, the writer of the Hebrews says, come under chastening. Why? Because all the children of God must struggle against sin in their life. Let's ask a couple of questions. What is sin? Sin, for many Christians, have an idea that sin is some kind of substance that's poured into me. And we talk about sin in that way, like it's some kind of a thing, a substance. The Scripture doesn't speak that way. The Scripture calls sin lawlessness. It is rebellion against the law of God. It uses the word lawlessness, anomia, in the Greek. The Greek text, referring, John refers to this First 1 John 3, Sin is lawlessness. Nomia comes from nomos, which is the law. A is what we call an alpha primitive in the Greek text. And when you preface that to a word, it negates the word. So it's a man, an individual, a woman, a child that is without law towards God. Paul picks up on that in Romans chapter 8. They are not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can they be. They hate God. They hate the law of God. Is there any reason why that uh, Judge Roy Moore put the Ten Commandments, the world is an outcry, wants it removed? We don't want the law of God anywhere. That's the lawlessness of man. Man wants to do his own pleasure. He wants to do what is right in his own eyes. I want to do what I think is right. I want to do what pleases me. You know, sadly, that's in me. And that's in you. And that's what we fight, isn't it? I've heard, in 20 years of ministry, I've heard more than I can count people who call themselves Christians and say this. I know what the Bible says, but I think. You've given up the ship. You're saying that you know God says this, but in your opinion, in your puny little mind, I think this is a better way. That's in our hearts, isn't it? And you say, well, no, it's not in my heart. Every time you sin, beloved, that's what you are revealing. That you love yourself more than you love God at that point. And at that point, you think you're wiser than God at that point. And that's in all of us. And that's a struggle. And God disciplines those whom He loves. Discipline me, Lord. It's it's not easy. It's painful. It's again what the writer of the Hebrews speaks about. It's painful to go through those times of discipline. But we need it. It's necessary. It, it 
it produces in us righteousness by those who have been trained by it. Keeping us away from those sins. You notice that David was not an adulterer. He committed adultery. And after that go-around with the Lord and with Nathan the prophet, he didn't commit adultery again. David wasn't our murderer. He committed murder. He did it once. And after the Lord brought discipline in his life, he repented. He changed his attitude about that. His mindset was changed. And it came out in the way that he lived his life. So this is the struggle of all of us. I like at times when it doesn't give the writer's name, the human writer, which it doesn't really matter, because ultimately we know that God is the author of all Scripture. But I like it in one sense that you can't pinpoint a specific time, a specific place, and principally, this could apply in my life easily, and yours as well. So the psalmist then begins in this way. I wait for the Lord. Just stop right there. Ever wait for the Lord? And the idea, the force of the text is, I waited and I waited and I waited. He waited long for the Lord. Can you think of some things in Scripture, examples of waiting? What about the waiting for the redemption of Israel? Where the people of God are waiting. Simeon, you find in the temple. Anna, uh, you find her in the temple as well. Waiting for the coming of the Lord. Waiting for the promise of the Messiah. Waiting long. How about Hannah? She waited for a son. She wasn't inactive in her waiting. She was one that waited upon the Lord, actively praying, coming before Him. Beloved, waiting does not mean inactivity. It simply means do not put the cart before the horse as we're prone to do. Let me give you an example of that. The Lord told Abraham that he would have a son from his own loins. Abraham said, Eliezer of Damascus, he is going to be my heir. No, he is not one that will come from your own loins. Abraham gave heed to his wife who said, take my handmaiden, take Tamar, we'll have a child by her. Which now you have the the Muslims, the descendants from Ishmael. He waited and waited and he was longing for a child. And when things didn't happen in his timetable, well, he took matters into his own hands. Now, I'm guilty. I'm guilty of doing just that. Not waiting upon the Lord to bring His will to pass, but becoming anxious, becoming desirous to get it done. And not wanting to wait upon the Lord in His timetable, but wanting my own timetable. My struggle is with my sin. The rebellion that is still within my soul and, and you yours. And that is the struggle. 
And so the psalmist says, I waited for the Lord. My soul waits. Again, he's talking to himself through this. This is a good practice. People might think you're crazy, but we partly are, aren't we? People talk to themselves all the time. You don't know whether they got a Bluetooth in their ear, what they're talking to. You see, we talk to ourselves all the time too. It may not be always audible, so everybody else can hear us, but we're always dialoguing. You wives know what I'm talking about. You said something to your husband, and he mumbled something, and you said, "What are you talking about?" Oh, oh, oh what'd you say, hon? Is he not paying attention? He's talking to himself. We talk to ourselves all the time. Here's the psalmist. What are you saying to yourself? That's a good question, isn't it? What are you speaking to your own heart? You see, you cannot let your heart speak. There is enough residual junk within our hearts that you talk yourself right out of faith. You need to speak to your heart. And what you speak is God's word. That's what we find in Psalm 42, the sons of Korah. Why are you so downcast? Have you ever had to speak that to yourself? I have. I've been downcast more than I would like to admit in the last three years. More downcast than I've ever been in 33 years as a Christian. The last three years. And I find myself speaking that to my heart over and over. Why are you downcast? Put your hope in God. There's the encouragement. There's no hope in man. Our hope is in the Lord. Our comfort and our confidence is in the Lord. And I need to bring that truth to this heart. And then I need to roll it around and reflect upon it again and again. Why? Because it seems like it so easily escapes, doesn't it? That's why it needs to become a part of the very fabric of my soul. How does that happen? By meditation. I need to meditate upon those truths. My soul must wait. Wait until the coming of the Lord. Don't fret. Don't get anxious. Wait upon the coming of the Lord. The Lord will recompense in His timing. Though He tarry long, He will do it. He will bring it to pass. We get anxious. We want it, and we want it when? Now. I don't want to wait. I want it now. We are that generation that wants it now. I mean, there were... There was a Taco Bell in California. I don't know if they still do this. Guaranteed to have your food out to you in 30 seconds. Something's wrong with that. I can't wait in line for a taco for 30 seconds? Either they're pre-made or something's just absolutely wrong with my mind. I'm out of my mind. You're beside yourself. We're just, we're, we'll wire ourselves too tight. I got to have my food in 30 seconds. Remember, Domino's used to have 30 minutes or less. Well, they stopped doing it because they couldn't deliver. And they were having too many crashes with their delivery drivers trying to get it there before 30 minutes. Wait. Slow down. Take it easy. Relax. Be still. My soul. It's a good hymn to reflect on, isn't it? The Lord is on your side. Be still 
cease. Stop getting all fired up and all anxious about something that you can't change. Relax. The Lord is on the throne. As I've heard before, where was the Lord at 9-11? The same place He was at 9-10 and 9-12. Sitting on His throne, ruling over all things to His glory. God is in control. We are called to submit to His will. To His time. My, my times are in Thy hands, O Lord. <clears throat> it's a hard lesson, isn't it? Learning who the master is and who the slave is. Because that's that, that residual of, I want to be master. You will be as God, determining good and evil. You. You can make that determination. You don't need anybody else to tell you. You can do it. You know, we love to play God, don't we? We love to want to sit on that throne. We like that Midas commercial where they put the crown on there. King for a day. And it doesn't want to give it back. Did you see that commercial? He didn't want to give back the crown. She got a little taste of this. I want to be king. We don't like to wait. Notice in verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in His word I do hope. That's the key right there. Hoping in the word of God. Hoping in the promises of God. With the Lord, a day is a thousand years like as a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. For us, especially when you're younger, like time just seems like it drags on forever. And then when you get older, it's like you can't stop it. It's like it's out of control. And you say that, don't you? We've been married 65 years. Where is the time gone? And the older people will say, and it goes faster and faster every year. Hoping in the Word of God. Trusting that I am in His hands, that He will bring it to pass. And that is my hope. Beloved, our hope is in God's Word. God's Word is His promise. And so that hope is a confidence that God will fulfill all that He has promised. The Scriptures tell us that God cannot lie. He will bring it to pass. So that is our confident hope. That is our expectation. The the second coming of Christ. When is that going to take place? No man knows the day or the hour that Christ will come and consummate His kingdom. Only that He is coming. And when He comes, He will cast out everything in His kingdom that offends. But He is coming. And when is He coming? You know, we can't have a prayer meeting and pray in the coming of Christ. That has already been allotted, appointed by God Himself. And so we wait. We wait and we hope. We trust. That's our confidence. Is hoping in the Word of God. What's your your hope like in the promises of God? Are you a reader of the book? Not a novel. Not the cartoons. Are you a reader of Scripture? Are you a reader of Scripture or are you a dabbler? I mean, it's a painting illustration. <clears throat> you know one who dabbles in painting as opposed to one who's a painter. Are you a dabbler of Scripture? Sit here and there, work on it when you have a little time. 
Or are you a reader of Scripture? If you're a reader of Scripture, you're a digester of Scripture. If you're a digester of Scripture, you're a meditator of Scripture. So you ingest the Word of God, and as you do, you meditate and reflect upon it again and again, and it changes the way that you think. You begin to know God in a deeper measure, in a deeper way. You have a deeper relationship. Relationships are like that. Human relationships are like that. You get to know somebody, and as you know them more and more, you become deeper in that friendship. Knowing things that other people don't know because you have that deeper friendship, that relationship. That's the way it is with the Lord. Now sometimes I question people who call themselves Christians as soon as they open their mouth and say something about God. You know what? I don't think you know Him. Not in salvation. I don't know how you can know Him and say that. Because in knowing God's Word, we know God. And notice this, the more that I know God, the more that I know me. And the more that I know me, the more I don't like me. And the more that I love the Lord. And I can't wait for the change that's coming where the mortal puts on immortality and the corruptible puts on incorruption. So, the psalmist then goes on, My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. This morning that he's talking about, you think about sitting up waiting for the sunrise. This is one waiting for one to come out of the darkness of struggle. This is what it it means, where the light dawns again. It doesn't simply mean going out to the beach waiting and waiting and waiting for the sunrise to come up. And I wait in the morning and I really have patience. No, it's talking about waiting for when the sun arises. In other words, metaphorically, when the light dawns again. When I'm no longer under the cloud, in the dips, in the deeps, the Lord brings me out of that. And there is waiting long for people that go through trials and tribulation in their life. There's long suffering for those. There's long suffering in David's life, waiting for the forgiveness of wanting to know and understand God more intimately. When he calls for forgiveness, he cries out for forgiveness. My soul waits. I long to know God in a more intimate way. More than those who watch for the morning. In other words, in his life, he's recognizing that he is longing. He's longing in such a way that he's outdoing others that long for the Lord. He had a great longing to be delivered from his sin. Do we? You know, Augustine, one of the great saints of antiquity, had said this one time. Lord, save me. But not now. What did that mean? Well, I, I, I want to dabble in some sin still. I want to dabble in other things yet. I, I need to be saved, but not right now. Hold off a bit. What do we used to call this? I've heard this before. Uh, sowing your wild oats. Boys will be boys. Ever hear that kind of nonsense? That's the nonsense of the world. That's simply saying, save me, but not right now. 
this is not what the psalmist is crying out for. I, I wait, and I wait longingly, expectantly, to know my God more intimately in the forgiveness that he provides. And then he calls out and he says to the Israel, the hope in the Lord. Isn't that what we do when we have been forgiven? When God forgives us and he brings us out of the deeps, out of that place that seems like it's swallowing us up, we want to tell others about God's forgiveness. And beloved, let's think about it. I asked a question about sin and what sin is. The Westminster Confession speaks of it in this way. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Want is old archaic term. It simply means lack. It's a lack of conformity to the law of God is sin. Or transgression of it is sin. Now, what is forgiveness? When God forgives, He forgives comprehensively. That means He forgives our sins Completely, when we first come to Him as those who are newly redeemed by the Holy Spirit and grafting us into Christ. There is not one sin that remains uncovered by the Lamb of God. So that's a comprehensiveness. All of our sins, past, present, and future. And then the reality of our experience We come to the Lord in a relational sense daily. So when John says, when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a relational sense. That is one who knows the Lord. He's not asking for salvation. He's asking for forgiveness of a particular sin he's committed. And that's what we do as the people of God. We keep on coming. We keep on confessing. When we sin, we confess it to the Lord and repent. Repentance is a change of the mind which affects the change of the life. Forgiveness. What is forgiveness? God forgives. When we come and we confess, God forgives. What is needful for us to be forgiven? Confession of our guilt before God. God forgives. God cleanses from all unrighteousness. If you want to be stubborn and not confess your sin to the Lord, you will not find forgiveness from Him and you will find bitterness beginning to develop in your heart. Try to stay steadfast and stick-necked in your life against sin. See what happens to your life. There's, there's no more miserable Christian than a Reformed Christian who's stiff-necked in their lack of repentance. When we come and we confess, God forgives. And what does it mean that He forgives? I, I know lots of people who have never forgiven. Forgiveness is not a blanket statement. Forgiveness is not like a blanket that throws over everything. Forgiveness is like a knife that cuts off. When God forgives is when we confess. The Bible knows nothing of forgive them in your heart and go your own way. There is always a coming and a reconciling with two individuals. We come and as it were, we're reconciling to the Lord and confessing our sin. And the scripture says that God casts our sins 
as far as the east is from the west. And then Paul picks up on that in Ephesians 4, and he says we are to forgive one another even as God in Christ has forgiven us. But you know what? We don't. We don't practice that. We don't even strive to do that. We don't even strive to do that well. What would that look like? When you forgive somebody, the Greek term of me means to send it away. So there's no more record of the wrong. That means it's not brought up against you again. It's been gone. Um, we call it today in a court of law expunging something from a record. What does that mean? It doesn't exist anymore. It's been removed. It's expunged from the record. Somebody goes and checks your record. It's not there. It's been expunged. So when God forgives, He doesn't bring it up against us again. You've got this nonsense in, in Christianity today where people will say, well, God forgets your sins. He casts your sins into the sea of forgetfulness. I, I, I don't even understand that nonsense. God doesn't forget anything. God can't forgive. He can't forget. God can't forget a thing. He's omniscient. If he could forget, why didn't he just forget our sins and Christ didn't have to suffer the inexpressible anguish, pains, and tears of the cross? God doesn't hold it against us again. He doesn't bring it up. He doesn't treat us like lawbreakers. He casts it away. How do I stand before God? You know, I look at myself in the mirror, and that's ugly. <laughs> Just physically, spiritually. That's ugly. You know, the Apostle Paul grew in his Christian life. And as he grew in his Christian life, <clears throat> he says, I'm the chief of all sinners. He found that within his life. That he didn't become a prideful and arrogant. Hey, look at me. Look at what I've done. No, he could see himself more and more of the sins so intimately in his life. As you grow in grace, you grow in humility. As you grow in grace, you grow in a sense of woe to yourself. You're not poking around in everybody else's business. you got enough stuff in your own life. You don't need to be getting involved in anybody else's. The sign of immaturity is you constantly poking in everybody else's business. You can't leave well enough alone because you've got enough stuff to deal with it yourself, but it makes you look better to poke at everybody else's stuff. Well, I would never, and I have never, and I didn't. You thought it a million times. But nobody knows your thoughts but you and God, and you're just as culpable before the Lord in thinking it. <clears throat> God casts it away. And He doesn't bring you into the court of law because you stand perfect in Christ Jesus. That's your position, beloved. That is a wonder. That's humbling. That almost makes you want to cry. And you know, practically speaking, you fail every day. I don't treat people as I ought to. I don't read the Word as I ought to. I don't pray as I ought to. Let's just say this. I don't do anything as I ought to. And yet God treats me as if I do. Why? Because he's covered and clothed me in the righteous robes of Christ. And then the promised work of the Spirit of God making me more and more like Jesus practically in my life, which is a lifelong endeavor.
But nevertheless, it is the work of the Spirit. God forgives. And God doesn't say, hey, you know what? That's the third time you did that. No, we do that. If someone comes to you and says, I repent. The scripture says, you shall forgive him. This is not an option. You don't have the liberty to say, I will not forgive you. You must forgive. And you must always be ready to forgive. And that's a difficulty in our life, isn't it? Because we really want to pound the flesh. We want to exact vengeance. And that's not what the Lord says to Peter. Well, how many times? Seven? The number of perfection. Peter thought he was doing quite well. Seven times? Boy, that's striving long with him. Jesus said, I don't tell you seven times, but 70 times seven. And he wasn't saying 490 times. He said your life is to be that which exemplifies forgiving other people because you have been forgiven a debt you could never pay. And if you've been forgiven a debt that you could never pay, you demonstrate that you have been forgiven by being a forgiving individual. That means you don't bring it up anymore. It's done and it's over with. Once that person comes, confesses, you forgive, and that's it. Fellowship is restored, and you move on in your Christian life. Not, hey, you know, you know what that person did to me. Oh, I can't believe. Oh, really? They did that? And then the st- gossip starts again, and the next thing, you know, choosing up sides. It's destroying the body of Christ to schism making. <clears throat> so when you receive forgiveness, you go to others and you tell them about the forgiveness of the Lord. That God forgives our sins. That, that, that's our problem. We have a sin problem. The, the disease, as it were, is sin. The cure is Christ. And when you come to Him, you have all that is necessary to your salvation. And we go and we tell others and we say this, there is abundant mercy with the Lord. Abundant forgiveness with Him. Mercy. Has said, covenant love of God. He doesn't give us what we deserve. What do you deserve, beloved? <clears throat> of yourself, right now, in the privacy of your own heart, what do you deserve of yourself from God? Now, don't say nothing. Because you deserve something. We all do. The wages of sin is death. We've earned and deserve damnation. We deserve temporal and eternal death. That's what we deserve. And when you receive the mercy of God, you don't get that. I deserve it. I deserve it millions and millions of times over. Every sin that we've committed deserves a hell all of its own. And how many sins have you committed in your life? I mean, we've become so nonchalant, we don't even think about sin anymore. God forgives, no big deal. And it becomes trivial and trite in our life. And yet, this is Christ suffering to remove the stain and the guilt of sin from us. God's mercy... His mercy is new every morning. Why is it new every morning? Because God is faithful. 
If we deny Him, He won't deny us. If we forsake Him, He won't forsake us. He can't deny Himself. God is a faithful, covenant-keeping God. There's mercy with the Lord. Start there when you evangelize people. How about this one for starters? Let me tell you about the mercy of God, that He doesn't give us what we deserve when we come to Him. He gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us Christ. He gives us forgiveness. He gives us grace. He gives us eternal life. He gives us all the blessings in the heavenly places. What a wonder. God gives us this. With Him is abundant redemption. This is a ransom. God ransoms His people. And how does He ransom His people? With the blood of His Son. Beloved, the, the, the depths of our lives as we go down into the deep and God delivers and brings us back up so that the grace of repentance, we come, we confess, He restores fellowship, the bridge is repaired, there's fellowship again, there's walking in unity again. There is no ever breaking of the union, but the fellowship, that can be broken. God restores that, there is great delight, there is joy in the heart that wells up. And how can we not but tell other people where mercy is found? The storehouse of mercy is with the Lord. And it's new every morning. God is great in His faithfulness. He is abundant, plentiful. He is one who is rich in abundance. God has redeemed a multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation because of the work of Christ. A number which no man can count. We think we're so smart and we have all the answers to everything in this world, especially in the electronic age in which we live. And Scripture says, here's a number of the redeemed that no man can number. What is it like? The stars of the heaven and the sand by the seashore. Well, I've been down to the seashore this past week. There's a lot of sand on that seashore. And then as you see the sand in front of you on the seashore, and you look to the left, and you look to the right, and you look behind you, and you see a whole lot of more sand. And then you think of all the beaches that are on in this world. And the Lord says, as the sand by the seashore in number, so shall your descendants be in multitude. God redeems. There is abundant redemption. He shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the covenant-keeping God with whom we have to do. Now I want to ask this question this morning. Are you trusting Christ? Has the Lord regenerated your soul? Because you cannot trust Christ unless the Lord regenerates your soul. But if He's regenerated your soul, you can say this morning, I'm, I'm trusting in Christ. Is your hope in Him for forgiveness? Is your hope of everlasting life Jesus Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, His session, His coming again to consummate all things. Is your hope only in Him? Or are you hoping in something that you can do? Oftentimes in the evangelical world, we get it wrong. We say, you know what, come to Jesus and He will save you. No, no. He won't come, come to Jesus and He'll save you. If you come to Jesus, you've been saved. Because nobody comes to Jesus unless they're saved. We've got to get it right, beloved. It's not repentance and then God grants you faith. God grants you faith. He infuses faith so that you might repent of your sins. This is the God in whom we have to do, who loves us with an infinite love. It boggles the mind that God loves us with an infinite love. The same love in which He loves 
His well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ. God loves us in that same manner, the same degree, as it were. And He doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what we don't deserve. And so let me say this to you. Hope in the Lord. And keep on hoping in the Lord. Keep on reading the Word, cultivating the Word, so that nothing in this world will be able to shake that hope and confidence from you as you look unto Jesus and you find the comfort and the confidence that all of your sins have been washed by His precious blood and His righteous robes have been placed upon you. And you stand righteous and holy in the sight of our God who says, I love you with an everlasting love and no one will ever snatch you from my hands. That's our hope and our confidence as the redeemed of Christ. Amen. Shall we pray?